You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley. Not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents A special dedication is in order for this episode. We lost two titans of American skepticism in the past few weeks. Pat Lindsay was the guiding artistic force behind Skeptic Magazine, and during the many years that we partnered with them, she was an optimistic and tireless voice of encouragement for this show. You'll be missed, Pat, and I wish the new team taking over that work great success. They can't fill your shoes but they can follow your path. And we also lost Tom Flynn. Tom was more well-known for his atheism and free-thought activism, but he did collaborate frequently with Joe Nickel, and his keen eye was helpful in my work on the Watertown ghost photo research. Tom was famous for refusing to celebrate Christmas, but in what I always took to be a very amusing and performative bit of curmudgeon In a world where nonsense abounds, you both stood as living signposts, showing there is another way. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. I'm not unflappable, but I do try to keep my emotions in check when we put together Monster Talk. But you can't spend a decade putting together a show like this without underlying passion to keep you going. 
Karen and I have lots of reasons for why we spend so much effort here, but among the top reasons are that there are narratives out there about how the world works, which are quite frightening if true. And those narratives definitely get promoted by the loudest voices with the widest reach. But some of us, and if you're listening, this might be you, like to know, is this stuff true? We know there are tools for evaluating the validity of a proposition. We talk about scientific skepticism, logical fallacies, evidence, inductive reasoning, syllogisms, forensic tools, Occam's razor, and many other kind of thinking tools that can be used to push you towards being able to tell whether something's likely true or false. Those tools, properly wielded, can be incredibly powerful and help you see past hype and sensationalism. We can use those tools to test things that have happened in our own lives, and we can use them to test things that we see in the media. But those tools are technologies. To use them, you need to be aware of them, learn how they work, and remember that they're available when the time is right. And I don't call them technologies lightly. Carl Sagan talked about these tools as being a metaphorical candle in the darkness, and I deeply wish that was true. But I think they're much more like night vision goggles. They let the people who wield them see the world more clearly, but they only help others if you take the time to share not just what you see, but how you can see what you see. And without these tools, our default methods for evaluating whether things are true is based on emotion and trust. Narratives can wrench our brains into all sorts of conclusions. Sometimes the stories people tell us carry payloads quite different from the pretty packaging. And this volatile mental ecosystem is constantly being hacked and influenced by people who want you to believe something or to do something. And this kind of approach is the heart of conspiratorial thinking. Oh, they're lying to us. And they know more than they're telling. And they're keeping a secret. And the truth is out there. And they want us to believe this. And they're afraid we'll believe that. And so on. But whether it's Bigfoot or ghosts or UFOs, beyond stories from witnesses or experiences of particular encounters, there's an additional narrative ecosystem of people who like to repeat stories. Why? What's the agenda? Do they just want to tell a good story? Are they trying to cash in through curation? Or do they want to change the way you see the world? People tell stories for a reason. Sometimes it's to entertain Sometimes it's to influence. When Karen and I sat down to talk with Toby Ball about season two of his podcast, Strange Arrivals, it came at a time when I had realized that there was something very fishy going on in the UFO world. A particular UFO term had started to really make me mad because of how it was being ironically twisted. The word? Disclosure. But first, a digression. I like to listen to NPR, National Public Radio. I even support them financially so that when they have pledge drives, I don't feel guilty. Also, they gave me a lovely tote bag one time. Anyway, here in the metro Atlanta area, the public radio station is W-A-B-E. The W in those call letters means that this station is east of the Mississippi, and if the station had been west of the Mississippi, it would have a K for its first letter. And why is east a W instead of a K? I do not know, but I bet there's an interesting story there. Anyway, the ABE part of that station name stands for Atlanta Board of Education. 
the Atlanta Board of Education owns the station license for our local NPR affiliate. And here's where we get the typical use of the word disclosure. Every time a story runs on WABE that has to do with Atlanta school systems, the reporter will say something along the lines of, As a matter of disclosure, this station license for WABE is owned by the Atlanta Board of Education. The reporters are trying to signal to you that they're being honest in their reporting and alerting you as to why there might be a bias. Hopefully, because they're sharing the status of being beholden to the school board, you can trust their reporting, took that into consideration, and tried to report fairly despite that relationship. And that is disclosure, or at least a kind of disclosure. In the UFO world, disclosure has a more powerful prophetic meaning. Since the 1980s, disclosure has come to be a kind of shorthand for the idea that the U.S. government is very aware that aliens are visiting the planet. The general narrative of disclosure is that there are reasons why the government's not revealing all this now, some good reasons, some bad, but there will come a day when all is put out into the open, and that glorious day will make all the UFO believers right and all the skeptics wrong. And if it sounds like I'm putting that in religious revelatory terms, you are correct. In every way, the idea of disclosure has stopped being anything like the release date for a book or movie and has taken on the religious aspect of terms like apocalypse, second coming, messiah, and so on. And when the recent unclassified congressional report on unidentified aerial phenomena was about to come out, the online UFO community shouted from the rooftops that disclosure was finally at hand. And those of us who'd been watching this field with skepticism for decades? Let's just say that the report that came out was the least surprising thing ever. Many skeptics told me what they expected in the report, and it was exactly the nothing burger we thought we were going to get, and also the fries were cold and saltless. But during all this mess, there was another revelation. And I don't know who to credit this to, honestly. When I do research, whenever I can, I like to credit the people who helped me come to these conclusions. So I'm going to name a few names here. Jason Colavito, longtime researcher of UFOs and ancient aliens, did a lot of work around the relationship of the people who were reporting in the New York Times the news story that kicked this off in 2017. Jeb Card and I had frequent conversations about this stuff. Jeb's an archaeologist and also something of a spookyologist. Author Sarah Scholes clued me into the existence of some of this stuff in her book, They're Already Here, which we discussed back in episode 221. Mick West and his site Metabunk was also very helpful in getting a less histrionic take on all the videos being released by the players involved. Aaron Gillius of the podcast The Saucer Life clued me into the existence of audio from Art Bell that I wasn't aware of. And if I'm missing anybody else, my apologies, but if the theme of this intro is disclosure, I'm not a key investigator. This intro is the synthesis of many other people's works. When we recorded this interview with Toby Ball about season two of his show Strange Arrivals, a funny thing happened. It's the first time I can recall getting really, really upset during a recording of Monster Talk. As I'm writing this intro, I haven't re-listened to the audio yet. I don't know how much of what I felt will be apparent in the audio, but I, I know I ended up apologizing several times to Toby for getting so frustrated. I wasn't upset with him, not at all. I was upset with the behind-the-scenes machinations that created this UFO UAP media blitz. Now, we've talked about Art Bell before. His radio show, Coast to Coast AM, 
was absolutely crucial to establishing the wide cultural awareness of several key narratives in ufology. If you know about Area 51 or Bob Lazar or Skinwalker Ranch and many other keystones of American paranormal culture, it's in part because of art. Art also worked with Whitley Strieber of Communion fame on another show called Dreamland. That was his Sunday night show. It was largely similar to his regular Coast to Coast AM show, but eventually he spun it off and gave it to Whitley to host. But did you know that before Dreamland, Art had another Sunday night show? And this was Area 2000. And it was not as widely syndicated as the Coast to Coast AM behemoth. Recently, a collection of recordings of this show were added to the Internet Archive, and I've listened to all the ones that are there. You're welcome. The thing that made the show really special, though, was that it had no commercials. There were no spots for the Sea Crane Company or any of Art's regular sponsors. Instead, the show was brought to you by the Bigelow Foundation. And here is how Art Bell would introduce each episode. The following program is made possible by a grant from the Bigelow Foundation. Welcome to Area 2000. This program introduces our listeners to the scientific approach to discussion of two particular subjects, UFOs and near-death and after-death experiences. To contact the Bigelow Foundation during the work week, call Angela Thompson between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. at area code 70. Now that's pretty clear disclosure, right? And there's nothing wrong with investigating UFOs or life after death. But here is the part that isn't clearly disclosed. In December 2017, the New York Times ran a front-page story on UFOs. As you might imagine, this thrilled UFO believers who ecstatically believe in a coming disclosure. Seeing the New York Times carry a front-page story about this topic made it suddenly seem like it was finally being taken seriously and that the real disclosure was just around the corner. And let's look at that byline. Who are the authors of this piece? Helene Cooper... Ralph Blumenthal, and Leslie Keene. Now, these aren't disinterested parties executing on unbiased journalistic principles. Now, the odd one out here is Helene Cooper. She's a well-regarded Pentagon-focused reporter. But the other two folks? Leslie Keene is heavily involved in the disclosure movement and was romantically involved with alien abduction researcher Bud Hopkins. Her latest book is on life after death. Ralph Blumenthal wrote what some have described as a credulous biography of alien abduction researcher John Mack. These people are not disinterested reporters. They're UFO activists. Now, where was the New York Times disclosure of that? The Pentagon program, allegedly run by Lou Elizondo, was tied to the Bigelow Foundation and the same set of players. The To The Stars Academy is also tied to Bigelow. George Knapp, who was key to bringing Bob Lazar in Area 51 to Art Bell and into public awareness, also tied to Bigelow. Senator Harry Reid, financially tied to Bigelow. So you've got this ecosystem of money from Bigelow tied into researching UFOs and the survival of consciousness. And if you've been paying attention to Monster Talk for a while, you'll recall this is also tied to Skinwalker Ranch, the Bigelow Research Group NIDS, Jacques Vallée, and even players going back to the 1970s Stanford Research Institute, SRI, which is certainly a nexus for all kinds of wacky bits of U.S. paranormal history. 
What if a billionaire gave money to a senator to help fund a UFO research department in the Pentagon, and that led to a story in the New York Times which suddenly made it look like the U.S. government's worried about UFOs? And what if it was conveniently left out of that coverage that this was all the same group of very enthusiastic believers leeching credibility off of both the New York Times and the Pentagon to make it look like we're all on the verge of, and you can say it with me, disclosure. Now, doesn't that seem like the sort of thing an honest news organization would want to, uh, you know, disclose? You might not think this is important, but it seems very clear to me that after all these decades of research into UFOs, NDEs, and other kinds of spooky phenomena, Bigelow's team of researchers can't find any proof or explanation for their beliefs within the boundary of standard physics. So, when faced with the quandary that they had two options, one, and I think this is sensible, to conclude that whatever's going on with this stuff has more to do with human perception and culture than ghosts and aliens, and the other, and I think this is the one they're actually onto, is to conclude that we have to reject material reality itself because it doesn't conform to what we want to believe in. That's not an exaggeration. There are many in that circle who openly call for the rejection of scientific materialist thinking because it seems to have no room for what Jason Colavito calls space poltergeists. Anyway, all of that was clicking around in my brain at the time of this interview. And if my annoyance bleeds out into the episode, I apologize, but I thought I should explain what I was upset about. Now, let's get to our interview with Toby Ball. He's put together a wonderful podcast called Strange Arrivals, and it takes a very interesting, entertaining trip through UFO history with excellent production values and great interviews. Check out our discussion with him, and you'll find links to his show and stuff I've talked about here in the show notes. And my apologies for my weird-sounding voice. I have a cold. It's not COVID. It's just, it's just a cold. Disclosure. Monster Talk. Welcome back, Toby Ball. The last time we had you on, uh, we, we it was part of our Monster Talk Live series, and we were discussing season one of your podcast, Strange Arrivals, which was, at, at least on the surface, uh, about the UFO case for Betty and Barney Hill. But it was actually about a lot more. And kind of at the end of that uh, that live event, off the record, you told me you were going to be going back and looking at the Rendlesham case for season two. And uh, and once again, I've been listening along and you're, again, giving people so much more than just that single case. So I'm really curious where all this is going to end up because uh, right so far, it's been a really comprehensive look at some really key players in the whole field of ufology. Yeah, well, thank you for having me back on and, and thanks for listening to that. Yeah, so we, you know, we made the decision to look at the Rendlesham case. And, you know, one of the first questions as as I was thinking about how are we going to approach this is, you know, what's sort of interesting about the case once you get past the, you know, this is what they said happened. This is what uh, skeptical investigators have found may have been what actually occurred. So so what what beyond that can we look at? And I think, you know, to me, what's sort of interesting is why does Rendlesham continue to be interesting to people? Why why are there still articles about that in the British press? Why are books still being put out about it? Why are podcasts being done about it? And, and then looking at that as being sort of a, a sort of a case study or, or a microcosm 
of the larger way in which sort of UFO mythology is understood? Uh, and and why do we why do we think we know what we know about UFOs as a culture? Right? What are, what are sort of our shared understandings? Whether you believe in them or not, and then how did we get there? So that that was sort of ended up being the big the big theme. And as we record this, I think we're about two thirds of the way through the season. It's about to take another turn. You know, a week from now. Uh, which I, I assume this will be out well after that happens uh, in real life. <laughs> yes, yes, it will. Yep. So those sound like really fantastic uh, questions to explore on the show, on your show. And so as far as the, the Rendlesham Forest case is concerned, it's pretty famous, but some of our listeners may not know about it. So you go into great detail about the case on your show and its context, but could you give us the elevator version of the case and and why it matters? Sure. So I, I actually interviewed sort of the three main witnesses and got them to tell their stories, which is essentially this. It's um, it's Christmas night in 1980 at a British Air Force base called Bentwaters, which actually is sort of housed by and run by, I mean, it houses and is run by the U.S. Air Force. So while there's sort of a British uh, the British are nominally in charge. It's really a U.S. Air Force. They had actually nuclear weapons, it turns out, on it. But anyway, so Christmas night, this guy named John Burroughs is on patrol with his supervisor. Um, his supervisor sees this light descend into this forest that's in between these two huge uh, Air Force bases called Rendlesham Forest. They're not sure what it is, but feel like maybe it's a, a downed aircraft, so they should go and investigate and they call in to um, headquarters, and headquarters uh, sends out a couple of people, including this guy, Jim Penniston. So Penniston and Burroughs and this other guy named Ed Cabansag, they go off base. They, they go off base into the forest, sort of following this light that they see, and they, they come up to it. They leave Cabansag sort of halfway through. They're having trouble with their radios for some reason. Uh, they approach the light, and there's this sort of berm in between where they are and where the light is, and the light gets brighter, and they they duck behind the berm. And then there's like this little – there's a little change, different story between Burroughs and, and Penniston. I'll get back to Penniston's account of it in a minute. They They jump out. The light starts receding. They chase the light. They can't find it. And that's basically uh, essentially the end of it. They they run out into a field. The light seems to have gone away. As they go back, they see another sort of blue light in the in the forest. But that that's sort of the extent of the encounter. They go, they report in, and that that's basically it. There's a second night where there's this sort of strange encounter between this one woman and a light that comes into her car. But there's not a whole lot known about that. It was hard to track down any information. And then a third night at a party that's actually being held on base with a lot of the top brass, someone from the Air Force comes in and says, you know, the the UFOs are back. The lights are back. So sort of a delegation is sent out into the woods. Again, this is off base. This is kind of a big decision to make to do something like this uh, because you're on foreign soil. But they go into the woods. 
they bring equipment like a Geiger counter and uh, night vision glasses. And they, again, they see this, they see uh, a light, they look through the night vision glasses. It looks kind of like a eye, like looking towards them. They, they go through the woods, they go back out to the fields again and see a bunch of lights sort of on the horizon. They think they might be over part of the base that that houses the nuclear weapons, it turns out. Uh, and they watch them for quite a long time. And then they just sort of give up and 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 return. And that that's sort of essentially the three nights of the encounter. But then as time goes on, it, it kind of takes on some more aspects to it, which I can go into now or we can talk about later. Yeah, let's unpack that as we go along. But this case does become quite famous. And I I know, and that's a lot of what your show starts out with, is discussing sort of this. I always like to go back to the Japanese film Rashomon, where it's like one story, but as you watch the story unfold from the perspectives of the different players, you get an entirely different idea of what actually happened. And there's some wild differences between what these people say happened over time. And I, I guess a lot of these UFO cases end up with stories. There's just stories and no actual evidence that anything happened at all. So, But what kind of records or evidence do we have with the Rendlesham case or contemporary to the original events? So at, at the site where they originally, on the first night, where they they saw the light, where they think there might have been you know, a craft or whatever. Uh, They went back there. They found uh, some marks in the ground and they saw, they used the Geiger counter. My understanding is they didn't really know how to use it. So they found sort of trace radiation, but thought it was really something. And there was a little bit of, um, I think like broken branches. There was just very, very minor things that when it was, when a guy named uh, Ian Ridpath went and talked to like the local forester, he said, yeah, that's not, those aren't like UFO landing markings. Those are rabbit scrat- scratchings, like apparently rabbits were scratching, foraging for food and, mm-hmm. and, and made those marks. So there was nothing really that stood up to much test. Uh, sort of one of the interesting artifacts that comes out of it is that Chuck Halt, who was the guy who, sort of in charge on the third night and brought the delegation out into the woods, he had a tape recorder. And so he was tape recording like what he considered to be important moments while they were out there. So it's not a continuous, you know, three hour tape of them tromping around the woods, but he would turn it on every once in a while, like when they would see something. So you do have this record of him, you know, saying, oh, there, there's the light. Oh my gosh, look at this. You know, it looks like an eye that's looking at me. And there's this thing where they lose track of it and they see it again in, in sort of this rhythmic pattern uh, that kind of comes into play later when skeptics take a look at it. So, it, you know, the other thing that they looked for, and, and this is something that's come out later, is uh, radar to, to sort of support this. Like three, three, four years later, when people were looking, uh, they they couldn't find any record of there being anything caught on radar. Later, a couple of guys who said they were working radar have come out and said they did see something. But this is, you know, 20, 30 years after the case. Yeah. So that it's, it, it is really interesting to kind of consider this is 1980. 
and you know now someone could you know whip out their phone and live stream it or whatever <laughs> things things are quite different now so uh so you mentioned Toby that there were different versions of the experience can you talk a little bit more about that sure so uh, sort of the biggest sort of wildest story that kind of emerged after you know this this is years after that the story is told but it, it supposedly happens at at this exact time is that when uh, so on the first night Jim Penniston and John Burroughs sort of ducked down behind this berm. And up to that point, their stories would basically stay the same. After that, Penniston says he got up, uh, looked over at Burroughs, and Burroughs was sort of in this trance, you know, in this space, in this sort of suspended animation. And Penniston sees this small triangular craft in the clearing. So he's not totally sure what to do, but he approaches it. Um, it's it's black. It's very smooth. It's got these lights that kind of shine under its skin. It's hovering. It seems to be hovering above the ground, and he tries to push it, and he can't budge it. And he sees that it's got hieroglyphics on it. Um, and he's looking at the hieroglyphics, and he, he sort of does a once-around on uh, on the ship and there's one big glyph and he sort of feels compelled to touch it and when he does he kind of gets this blast of light and in his mind he you know he sort of describes it as being like a download he gets all these ones and zeros start going through his mind and he pulls his hand away eventually and the light goes away and but he's got his night vision right away. Like he, it, it's not as though there's a light shining in his face. So he, he says, you know, it wasn't that kind of technology. And, and so when this sort of, this scene is over, the ship starts to recede. And that's when Burroughs comes out of his sort of state of suspended animation. And they watch as the light sort of recedes through the, through the trees Penniston says later that night when he goes home, he has a hard time sleeping and these numbers are just kind of making him feel crazy. So he gets out a notebook and he just, he lets it flow. Like these numbers that are in his brain, he just writes them down. I think he writes down 17 pages of ones and zeros in this notebook. And years later, I think this is in the, I think it's in the 2000s. Uh, He's shooting something for like Ancient Aliens or one of those TV shows. And he's sort of, you know, is going through his notebook sort of on scene looking for a date or something. And he flips back to this, these ones and zeros. Somebody on set notices it and says, hey, that's binary code. So they go and they, they get the binary code decoded. And it's got this these really cryptic messages of like eyes of your eyes, AD eight thousand, and then these um, coordinates. And it turns out it's like the latitude and longitude for like the Great Pyramids and Irish Atlantis and Sedona and a place in China is maybe the Nazca Plains. It's all these sort of like new agey spots. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's that, that's kind of where that story ends. Like nobody else can confirm it. Nobody else thinks that that actually happened. That it just seems like something he kind of came up with after the fact. So, but it's it's super strange, definitely. 
is there any way to date the notebook? Like, or to know that those pages really came from contemporary to the, the original events? Not that I know of. I believe it is the notebook that, so he had a notebook while he was out there that he took, he took some notes in and drew some pictures. I think the idea is that he probably put that stuff in later. Um, I think that's what people suspect. Yeah. I mean, it would be, I mean, just thinking about, I mean, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I know your show does a great job of like giving a really good, you know, explanation of a lot of this stuff and I, and, and, and contextualizing it. I just, sorry, the nerd in me is like, wait a minute. So he's, what is this ASCII? So like, why? why? <laughs> well, well, if you really want to get like into the like nerd weeds of this, apparently when it was decoded, I didn't include this in the, in the podcast. Cause it, it, I don't know. It seemed like there's a lot of other monster talk exclusive. Here we go. <laughs> is that uh, apparently it's in like, there was a seven, uh, you know, a seven unit binary code and then eight unit binary code was adopted in sometime after 1980. And in order to decode this binary, the way they did, it was in the eight figure yeah. figures, if that makes any sense. It, it does. So it seems like it was kind of done post 1980 or the message that, that Penniston thinks he got out of this is that they are actually humans from the future and not aliens they're humans from the future coming back to tell us something. And it's like, it's, you know, it's a code within a code and, you know, it's coordinates and the relationships between these geographical places, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It doesn't make much sense. You know, if I was going back 8,000 years into the past to give them some important message, I would not, you know, give them, you know, binary downloads and codes within codes or whatever. I think I'd just kind of lay it out for them and, <laughs> You know, it's a bizarre story. What about the hieroglyphs? Were they ever translated? I I think all you've got are his drawings that that he made. And I I don't think anybody's tried to do anything with those. I I haven't run across it. Uh, Maybe somebody has. But I I don't know how accurate people think it is. There's – I've seen some pictures – I don't, that's, that's an interesting question. I don't think there's a, a whole lot's been done about that. And I think it, I don't know if that's because people don't take it that seriously or. or yeah, they're two very it, different languages anyway. It's an interesting yeah. combination. Yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely, I don't know. It, it, it doesn't seem suspicious. To me, but, um, so that, that's really, that, that's sort of the, the wildest of the stories. I mean, they both, uh, Chuck Halt, he he sort of expands a little bit on his original story. I mean, it do, it doesn't change a ton except for stuff that happens that he claims happens afterwards. But he kind of plays up some things that were on the tape that didn't seem especially noteworthy on the tape. But he does talk about how a beam was sent down from one of the objects and like came pretty close to him. Things like that. Uh, and then they, they there's a lot of talk afterwards about how you know, the Air Force and, you know, the government was was trying to keep them quiet and that they were brainwashed and, and had mental blocks put in and, and, and false memories implanted and things like that. So, you know, sort of general conspiracy type things. So I'm just going to add to that. It seems to have a kind of men in black kind of thing to this story with the, those people turning up and asking questions about what they'd seen. Yeah, you know, it's... I mean, there's a certain amount of paranoia and, and, you know, 
again, I don't know the reality behind what what happened afterwards and and how much they were questioned and and how intense the Air Force was in, their, their interest was. Uh, mm-hmm. If you just go and you take a look at sort of the documentation at the time, there's just, the, it doesn't seem like the Air Force took it very seriously at all. Right. Right. Um, so the only thing there, a bunch of people wrote like these little narratives, right? But they weren't official documents. They're just narratives saying this is what happened. And they all have sort of their different takes. And some people were at a distance and some people were closer and all that. The only thing that was sort of officially sort of ordered was Chuck Chuck Hall, again, the guy who led the group into the forest on the third night, wrote a memo called the Halt Memo, which sort of in three points sort of lays out what happened and that he was supposed to give that to the to the British base commander. But, you know, this is this is during Christmas, during the holidays, and he waited until the the uh, base commander got back from holidays to give it to him. And that was another thing that, you know, people who are looking into are like, well, if he really thought it was UFOs, like aliens coming on to, you know, military territory, wouldn't he like sort of insist that the guy see it the next day? You know, would there be a little more sense of urgency rather than, oh, well, you know, whenever he gets back from vacation, I'll, I'll go and talk yeah. to him. Uh-huh. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. Yeah, the show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Well, isn't this the problem? I mean, I've been following a lot of this news around this A-tip and the UAPs and all the different terminology and the people who are pushing this agenda of getting the government to, you know, officially report on this. And I guess the thing is, it's like there's videos coming from the Navy and these stories here from the Air Force. Nobody's going to general quarters. 
nobody's sounding an alarm. Nobody's like putting everybody on alert. Nobody's firing. I mean, like, you know, it's like you've got a few people who happen to have the authority of, of a government job, uh, you know, uh, talking about this stuff. And the entire UFO community is leeching relevance. Like they're, they're, they're like pulling all the importance because people within the government are talking about it, but the government's huge. It's not a monolith. It's this, it's all these different compartments and departments and, and individuals, you know? And so of course, when you've got hundreds of thousands of people, you know, in government positions, some of those people are going to be UFO enthusiasts of the kind that skeptics are annoyed by, you know? Um, <laughs> I just, I find it, I find it really disturbing how the media lately has latched on to this, uh, this these late late uh, recent themes around around these you know press releases, the New York Times story, that kind of stuff. But in your in your show, you're going back and and looking at uh, some of the historical use of the government's uh, research into this, and so you talk about how. Uh, there's these different government uh, programs to investigate the the, the question. And now I know uh, some people may think, well, that's you know flying saucers. That's not the same as what we have now, but it's still the same kind of scenario. And I, I really think you do a good job of uh, contextualizing that and looking at, like this really nice historical uh, look at these different approaches. And I can't wait to see where you're going next. But can you talk a little bit? about uh, some of those early government programs to try to find out what was going on or whatever their agenda may be. Because I think a lot of people in the UFO community would argue those weren't sincere investigations. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I realized that was a rambling question. So, Sure. Yeah. Um, question. <laughs> Please state your question in a question form. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Can you tell me about... Project Blue Book, the Condon Report, Grudge, those programs. Yeah. What is Project Blue Book? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Project Blue Book is the one that's best known. It was there the first one in 1947. Maybe I should take a step back. As, as your listeners may know, 1947 is sort of the kickoff of the modern UFO era. It's Kenneth Arnold seeing a bunch of flying sort of bat wing type things around uh, Mount Rainier. And then a couple of weeks later, it's Roswell, even though that doesn't sort of bubble up to public attention for a, a few more decades. But in 1947, I guess there's enough of that stuff that uh, the Air Force starts a, a small project to look to try to figure out what's going on. Uh, it is called Project Sign. Uh, that becomes renamed Project Grudge, uh, I think, a couple of years later. And then it finally becomes Project Blue Book around 1950. And so the idea there is, you know, this is like, you know, it's late forties, early fifties. So what's going on in the sky is a lot different than what's going on in the sky now. Uh, you know, just in terms of, you know, there aren't satellites, a lot fewer planes. And I, I can't remember what book I was reading, but somebody was making sort of this interesting point that people just, you know, you didn't look up, people didn't look up in the sky as much. There just wasn't as much there to concern you. And and so suddenly people are seeing things in the sky, and it's like, what what is it? And and as you would imagine, uh, in sort of the early days of this of this kind of thing, a lot of the things are pretty easily explained. Whether it's it's planets that people are seeing, or or birds, or you know, sun dog, whatever whatever kind of natural phenomena, 
you can think of that that now we would say, well, of course, but there's you know about twenty percent of things that they're having a little harder time figuring out exactly what they were. They put together a panel called the Robertson panel in the early fifties to kind of take a look at at what what they found, uh, see if there's anything that's interesting, and they sort of come to the conclusion that there's not, and that really the the big concern is that the Russians might use UFOs to kind of freak us out uh, and cause sort of general panic. And that, that's sort of what they're most concerned about. And so they suggest that we do a better job of educating our students about, about science and critical thinking. So, but it continues, right? It continues, it goes on until about 1970. I, I kind of focus on this guy named uh, J. Allen Hynek, who was the consulting scientist for Project Blue Book. And he's sort of this interesting character in that when he he signs on very early in like 1947, and and he's initially a skeptic and just figures, you know, he'll be able to solve these things pretty quickly. And as time goes on, he, he does a lot of investigations. And again, he's finding that most of the stuff is very easily explained, but there's a small percentage that that's harder. And there are specific cases that he kinds of runs into that he, you know, he has a hard time coming up with a satisfactory answer for. And by the time project uh, blue book starts to wind down. So in the late sixties, you know, he's starting to waver a little bit and he's starting to think that maybe the air force isn't is interested in finding out what's really behind these things as it is in just sort of explaining them away so the other thing that's interesting about Heineck is that more than you'd expect from a guy who's a scientist, he's also really into paranormal stuff. So from an early age, he's been interested in sort of esoteric topics. And in the you know 60s and 70s, he gets interested in sort of out-of-body experiences and psychic photography and um, – different things like that. And he starts to have these ideas that maybe UFOs are actually, actually extra dimensional. Uh, They're not, they're not extraterrestrial. They're from another dimension that we just can sort of interact with them every once in a while. So, you know, one thing that you hear a lot, sort of the legend of, of of Alan Hynek, and there's actually uh, a, a TV show kind of based around this is that he went from, being skeptic, did all these investigations, and then ended up being a believer. But I think there's a pretty strong case to be made that somehow, <laughs> you know, of all the of all the astronomers in in the U.S., the Air Force managed to find one who has had this sort of strong interest in the paranormal and was pretty open to the idea of sort of answers outside the normal realm of science. So it's just, it's kind of an interesting, it's not even a footnote because it's a, it's an important part of how did we get to where we are now with our understanding of UFOs is the work that Heineck did. He's the guy who came up with the the close encounter system. So he's, he's like a major figure, but you don't hear a whole lot about his interest in poltergeists, for instance. Uh-huh. Uh, when you read about his, you know, investigation of UFOs and, uh, you know, it's clearly an important piece of it. And you just answered our next question. 
without us having to ask. <laughs> well, true. I, I think, although we, we recently had an episode where we talked about sort of paranormal Bigfoot. And the reason I did that was because of the same sort of thing you're dealing with, which is if you just look at a lot of the mainstream coverage, you don't see this stuff about the occult and the esoteric uh, that Heineck was into. And in the same way, a lot of the Bigfoot stories have really strange poltergeist-like or UFO-related qualities or uh, or details that are just shaved off when, when the stories are told in the media or whatever. And and I think our that was Kutchin and Renner. I think they called that weird washing, where you just sort of scrape scrape off the weird, and, and and what you're left with is, well, why would why does the military not want to? You know, why does the government not want to? And it's like, well, because if you look at the whole picture, it's it's Strange. almost impossible <laughs> to fit it into the scientific worldview, and and I think this is my opinion, but I don't think I'm alone thinking this that that there is. Uh, an agenda uh, in a lot of ufologists uh, to undermine scientific materialism. Like they really don't like it. They, they want to reject it. And if they can get wide acceptance that all of these strange things are real, then therefore scientific materialism can't stand up to that. And therefore it'll collapse and something else can be built some other way. And, th and they'll say scientists are too close-minded. There is definitely a filter problem. We can't do scientific research on something that's ephemeral or anecdotal, you know, where there's nothing to test. So I think there's some problems there, but I really think there's something important with this, this hidden undercurrent of the occult and the anti-materialists uh, that's just absolutely thick with the UFO world. Like it's, it's just part of the core matrix of what makes that, that whole worldview. You know, and I, I think, you know, it probably draws the same people. I, I, it's probably part of it is that if, you know, I think, I think people who are interested in the esoteric probably also get interested in UFOs and that, that leads to some crossover. Um, but yeah, hide, hide the, this whole thing. I mean, this is, one of the frustrations I've kind of had, I think, in looking at this the UFO stuff is that there does seem to be like holding holding people to scientific rigor doesn't seem to be like a real strength necessarily of the UFO community. And, and I you know not universally, I guess, but I do feel like I spend quite a bit of time reading things that are sort of shown as proof of this or that or the other thing. But it's like, you know, you wouldn't like, don't even worry about science. Like if that was brought up in a court of law and you're asked to convict somebody based on that kind of evidence, like there's no way you would do it. You know, it's just, it just doesn't rise to that level. So I'm not totally sure <laughs> where, where we ended up with that. But, uh, well, I, I think what it is, is I, I realized like when we're doing this, I probably should have like, what I have apparently a big giant rant like in my head that wants to pop out of my mouth, <laughs> <laughs> and it's like I am I'm I think I I think as we've discussed this and I've listened to your show I've been building up all this sort of frustration and now it's like trying to come out and, and instead of questions I'm throwing opinions and I need to stop doing that. You've done a beautiful job uh, of putting together this research, and I cannot wait to hear the rest of it. I'm very excited about uh, where you're headed with it, and I'm, I'm hoping you're going to get to stuff like Roswell, 
Um, I don't know if you're going to dig into that or not, but I, you know, as you're going through this stuff, I, and I'm assuming you're going to round it all up and sort of have a, like a conclusion that sort of draws it all together, because I, what I'm piecing together and and it, it sort of comports with my own personal views already, is that the whole history of this field is a bunch of repetitive cycles of 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 stories that are very strange being shaved down to core essentials promoted investigated argued about and then what we end up arguing about is like these little details around facts and ignoring these giant weird implausible facets of these things and i'm not talking about implausible like the ship moved faster than our technology i'm talking about implausible like this stuff with the hieroglyphics with mind control with you know regressions and hypnosis and and it just there's so many and with people thinking maybe it's fairies maybe it's psychics you know that there's like all that stuff's there but that's not what people you know well why won't science take this seriously why will not why will the scientists not take this seriously i don't know <laughs> could it be because there's magic portals and you know space hieroglyphics and uh, time travelers and you know angels and I, I, it's like it's it's not something science would ever take seriously because it's wackadoo. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and there's no evidence. I mean, yes, there's no, there's no evidence. I mean, it's another thing. Is that, is that you know, you know, somebody's got a warehouse in Nevada which has got all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, all right, that's awesome. Can you show us like something? <laughs> yeah, yeah. They've got a, is all this stuff is a warehouse. It's probably like a little air conditioned room with a box of crap in it. I mean, you know, I, <laughs> I mean, I'm ready to be underwhelmed. But you know, they've been talking about these UFO parts since the '90s. I just got through listening to. Are you familiar that Art Bell, in addition to Coast to Coast, he had a show on called Area 2000? No. Oh, this is wild. I'm gonna I'm gonna use this in the intro. He did a show in 93 and 94, at least. I don't know how many episodes he did, but it was a once a week show and it was called Area 2000 and it was hosted, it was sponsored by the Bigelow Foundation. And, <sighs> and each episode opens up with saying, we're here to talk about two things, UFOs and continuous consciousness after death. So NDEs and that sort of thing. So basically all the stuff that they hide, the consciousness the sort of spiritualism side of things was right there in the intro. It was all there in the open from Bigelow, who's largely responsible for this latest news flap around and, and for the government's report. I mean, I don't think any of that would be happening if the New York Times story hadn't ran. And that's all, in my opinion, a giant sham because it's all from the same people. It's all the same people doing the same nonsense. And I'm hoping that by the time this episode comes out, I've managed to distill my ravings into a, an, a cogent intro so that by the time they get to this point, it makes some kind of sense. I have all this in my head, like this whole, I've just been watching this narrative de deploy over time. Mm -hmm. And I see how we're all being manipulated by a man with a whole bunch of money who has a little group of people who have managed to get into positions where they can control the narrative and do like a press release. This thing is exactly like a press release for a big book. But what they're trying to release is the idea that science should be undermined by this new age crap. Oh, that sounds very judgmental, but I totally am in that kind of a mood right now. 
Let it fly. Um, so I, Jesus, I just want to say, I didn't know I was this mad. Jeez, Louise, I never get like this on the show. This is crazy. So sorry, sorry. <laughs> so I, I can go, I can talk a little bit about what sort of the next little piece is. Cause I think it, you know, the whole, the, the idea behind the season, right. Was to, was to trace back. It's like, where, where do these ideas come from? And, and what I really wanted to start off, we couldn't get the rights to this, but there's this, um, there's a, a clip from a Jimmy Kimmel show where he has Obama on and mm-hmm. he says, you know, something about, you know, you know, if I was, if I was president, you know, the first thing I do right after I got sworn in is I'd run inside and I'd say, get me the files on area 51. Uh, <laughs> and everybody starts laughing and Obama's like, well, that's another reason why you won't be president. And uh, everybody laughs, but it's, you know, everybody knows what area 51 is, right? You don't have to mm-hmm. explain it even to people who don't care a thing about UFOs or whatever. It's where I do my Naruto run every summer. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and so it was like, how? Where did we get? How do we get here? Like, what what are the, what are the what are the forces that that have informed right. us of this? And so, you know, the the Rendlesham was was sort of it's a, it's you know it's an interesting story in the in the in this the skeptical investigation and how they explain it is interesting. Uh, is sort of a, a small case. And then there's Blue Book, which which sort of is the the foundation for what we understand, you know, cars that stall and radios that go off and, and all this stuff all comes out of these Blue Book investigations. And then so the next phase, which is is going to start, I think, sort of, I get lost where we are in the production of these different ones, but I think the next week after we're taping this uh, starts talking about Richard Doty. Are, are you guys familiar with him? I'm not. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. But, but please, I mean, in case the audience is, please do intro. Him. Okay. Yeah. So he was, a, he was a guy who's uh, at the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. Um, and he essentially his job was to spread disinformation in the UFO community. Um, and there's, there's a couple of very, you know, you know, famous within UFO ranks uh, about about how he's fed in, information to this guy, Paul Benowitz, who was an electronics guy in Albuquerque, right outside Kirtland Air Force Base, and thought that he was taking pictures and picking up signals from UFOs over Kirtland Air Force Base. And what the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, you know, I guess allegedly did, but you know, Rick Doty talks about it is, is they fed him disinformation to convince him that what he was seeing were UFOs and that in fact, the UFOs, the aliens, you know, had bad intents and that had signed a treaty with the U S government, but we're going back on it. And, you know, this whole narrative comes out of it and he had like a nervous breakdown and gets institutionalized and, and all this stuff. So anyway, um, the next, the next piece of it is about how, you know, some of the stuff that, again, has worked its way into kind of a mainstream understanding of UFOs was stuff that was was planted by the government within the UFO community as sort of a disinformation campaign, uh, supposedly because they were concerned about what Russian or Chinese agents could intuit 
from information that was being shared at those conferences and and you know videos and stuff because I, I think like the stealth fighter and things like that were being uh, tested. You know, it's a hard one because I think the the legend of Richard Doty is is pretty. <laughs> you know, there's no way one man could quite live up to the full legend of all the stories you hear about him. But I, you know, I did interview him at length. Oh, really? Yeah. I I tell you what kills me about Doty. By the way, I would say if you if you ha- if you want to learn more about him, I I found the Mirage Men documentary really interesting. Yes, uh, absolutely. I think I think that was streaming on Amazon or, or Netflix, one of those. After coming out as pretty clearly, uh, I'm going to say at best, at best, a nefarious person, <laughs> like, like, like possibly far worse than that. But I mean, someone who's absolutely open about the fact that he was a disinformation agent, yet he is still a, a figure in ufology who gets to come and give talks. Uh, who's like, uh, I mean, who still consults, who still provides information to pro UFO people. And I don't understand, like, do they have no discernment? What does it take? You I mean, you can actually say, I lied to people for the government about the existence of UFOs, and they'll still take your word. They'll still work with you. But if you're a scientist and you have questions, well, you're closed minded and we're not going to have anything to do with you. Okay. What? <laughs> Okay, I, I I told Karen privately I wasn't going to continue to rant, but apparently I'm still mad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm, uh, I'm I'm bringing up all the right names. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 setting him off. So yeah, we've haven't got too much longer to go with the the interview. So uh, I'm not sure where you want me to go at this point, Blake. <laughs> Let's do nine. Let's do nine. Okay, so Toby, are you going to be covering disclosure in your show? Uh like the recent report and stuff like that like the disclosure movement or the idea of disclosure yeah. in general yeah so you know what i was really hoping was that there would be a little bit more meat to this you know of any kind to this report that just came out because <laughs> right, my, right. my thought yeah. was the final episode would be taking a look at the report and saying hey look you know when you look at this like you know what are you bringing to to this when you look at this because I, I figured it was going to be you know it wasn't going to come out and say very much of anything, but I was hoping to say a little bit more so that you could take a look at sort of cultural assumptions and how, you know, what, what lens are you looking at this report through? There's really not a whole lot there. So you, you've had time to look at the hundreds of pages of documents they gave you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I, uh, I skimmed it quickly before we got on this call. What was it? Isn't it like 17? It's not many pages. Like was it 17? I think it's like, yeah, if, if that, I, I actually, I listened to, um, the daily podcast had a guy on talking about it, which is a whole nother story. But um, yeah, I think so. I mean, I think that's going to be, that's, that's going to be part of it is uh, sort of finishing up is why do, why do people think that, that we're, we're approaching disclosure and what, what, what do we, what do people, what's the expectation of that? Like what, what sort of expectation do we have? What will disclosure look like? If you even think about it at all, if you were to think about, you know, what I'm trying to think of how best to say this, I clearly haven't thought this through well enough because, you know, it's that it's that last episode that's sitting there with a bunch of question marks on my little. Sure. Yeah, uh, that makes sense. But but I but I do. I mean, that's the whole point of this whole thing is is how do you think about all these issues and where do you get the information that you think that you have? 
And mm-hmm. so how how does that how does that lead to things? One of the things I feel like I found out of all this is that there really is, you know, there, there's quite a disconnect between people who are really involved in it, and then like even sort of my friends who have sort of very 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 passing interest in UFOs. Like they're mostly just like, oh, you're making a UFO podcast, um, and and that's kind of the level of their interest. And it's just, I you know, online you see this. It's almost the thing I would I would compare it a little bit to is, you know, sometimes these these cults that have like an end time uh, that's coming up, and and I was thinking about like the Lubavitchers uh, back in I think the eighties or nineties. They they carry around pagers so that they could be alerted like the moment at which the Rebbe came back. So they're living in this like constant state of something's about to happen, something's about to happen, something's about to happen, and sort of this the the, the sort of psychological effects and the expectations that you have based on that. And you know, I go on Twitter and it and it seems like there's definitely that aspect of things recently and 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 every time there's another unclassified navy video of something comes out and you know the whole count, countdown uh, to the re- release of the report and stuff and it's, it's a pretty interesting it's a pretty interesting phenomenon that again i think it's is really feels very tangible and potent to right. a certain group of people whereas other people like have absolutely no idea or interest uh, is it's sort it's kind of an interesting dynamic. Mm-hmm. So who do you think uh, listens to your show? Do you think it's people like us, uh, or do you think it's people with a kind of passing interest in the topic, uh, or people who are new to the topic? You know, I don't know. I mean, I know that there's some there's some people who are who are sort of UFO community people who listen. I mean, I'm not. I think on the show, I'm not quite as outwardly skeptical. No, I think, yeah, you've got a journalistic approach, I think, is within the narrative of the show. Yeah. Yeah, I try, to, I, you know, I try to, yeah, I try to hold off on that, although people still give me a pretty hard time. <laughs> like, you can you tell who the favorites are. People you jumping all over me for dragging Bud Hawkins last season. <laughs> you know, so I think there's a few people like that. I mean, there's a few, there, there are people who, who know me from, from uh, another podcast I do. Yeah. I don't, you know, I, I, I guess I, I don't really have a, a real sense of how, how that goes. That's a, that's an sure. interesting question. <laughs> Just curious. You know, some people, I, I feel like there are some skeptics. I feel you like there are some with... skeptics who listen because I, I get stuff from, from them. Cause I, you know, as, as you know, you know, the vast majority of these things are, are absolutely pro aliens are coming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even while they say they just want to investigate, like we just want to know the truth, but it's definitely aliens. And also uh, there's life after death and it's a consciousness thing. You wouldn't understand it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I I hate UFO Twitter so much. <laughs> They're a bunch of jackals. They're jackals. I don't get involved. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I I kind of... <laughs> I don't really engage so much, uh, but I, I do. It's interesting to kind of watch, see, see see what's happening, see what's trending, see how excited people are getting. Yeah. Well, man, okay, so I, I realize I've been a crazy person on this episode. I apologize. Um, I don't apologize for my feelings, but I don't normally let them out. 
Because <laughs> it's good. It's cathartic. Passionate about this topic. Apparently so. I, it'll probably come out in the intro. Like I, 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 I was actually going to do a special rant. It's been in my head because I wanted to talk about disclosure. Coming up to this uh, release for this document, I and I didn't. You know what we got was exactly what I expected. Nothing. Right. <laughs> that was what I thought we'd get. That's what we always get. It's because that's what there is. You know, I, I mean, I just if there were something real, tangible, technological going on, it's absolutely appropriate for the government to investigate. But if it, if it was actually like real threats for like a lot of these modern sightings, the ship would come alive. You know, the base would come alive. Like everybody would be involved with fighting back against whatever this threat is. It would not be a few video anyway whatever you know mick west and his group you know his 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 website they do a great job of trying to explain these things on a case-by-case basis which is how you have to approach them to get to the bottom if you look at the whole thing as a giant phenomenon it's just like ghosts ufos become an explanation for everything that you don't understand and and we mean ufo as an unidentified flying object and they mean ufo as an alien intelligence a phenomenon or or something It's it's yeah. it's so disingenuous. It's so difficult. It's so painful. But your show is doing a great job, and I I, I highly recommend it to our listeners. I appreciate that, Karen. Can oh. you get me out of this mess? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I think just a few parting questions. Uh, aside from what Blake said about everyone should should tune in and listen to your show. So, how many episodes are there in this season, and where can people find the show? So there's going to be 12, possibly 13 episodes. It's uh, it's called Strange Arrivals. Uh, I mean, you should you can get it on any any podcast app. So I believe when we did our live episode with you, um, we asked you our signature question of what's your favorite monster. Oh yeah. Do you remember what you said? If I if I didn't say Bigfoot, I was lying. Okay. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it's changed. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> It was funny because when we were talking before uh, and you were talking about uh, sort of the, you know, Bigfoot and, and uh, weird washing and all that stuff. And I always think, you know, a seminal moment of my uh, of my childhood was the six million dollar man mm-hmm. uh, episode where it turns out that that Bigfoot is a android that comes from a UFO. Well, he's a, he's kind of a cyborg, isn't he? He's bio, like, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's aliens. Yeah, there you yeah. go. Good example. Got, got all my all the greatest things all wrapped up into one when you're twelve oh, yeah. years old. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Bigfoot. Maybe his his uh, Himalayan cousin, the Yeti, would be my my one B. Oh, cool. We wanted to follow up on on that question anyway. Uh, okay. Just focus it more on UFOs. If you could. Tell us why do you think ufology is important? So, I you know, I think what's really interesting about ufology, and I hate to kind of make an exact comparison, but I think it's it's similar to like spiritualism, like mm-hmm. back in the eighties and hundreds and stuff. It's like what what is all this telling you about the world that you're living in? And, at the yeah. time, like either historically, like, and I, and I think, you know, you can draw some pretty obvious conclusions about the Cold War and, and, and UFOs in the 40s, 50s and 60s. But I, I do think it's interesting, like right now at, at this particular time, you know, why this sudden resurgence 
in UFOs, why has it taken uh, the form that it does now? Um, that to me is is kind of the is kind of the interesting thing. And I, you know, the hope was that by taking sort of a longer sort of historical look at it, that maybe at the end, I, I guess this is a better answer to your question about disclosure, but at the end, it's what, you know, a, as this has evolved, as our understanding of, of all this stuff sort of morphs, like what what does that really mean about our moment now? And I, you know, I don't have an answer, but I think that's kind of the stuff that's interesting to think about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because again, I mean, I think, I mean, my interest isn't really so much in, you know, are they real? Aren't they real? Whatever. I mean, there's there's plenty of stuff that does that. I don't think I have much original to add in that that way. But you know, are there are there different ways of looking at it? You know, are there different interesting things you can get from it? Um, and I, and I think that's, I'm a history major, I mean, you know? Oh, well, that explains a lot. Yeah. Cause that, you, that's kind of the way we look at the world. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. And, and I think in the, in, you're exactly right because if you don't take that long view and you don't, you know, look at the different pieces, historical context, social context, all those things, you end up just angrily ranting little blurbs at people and nobody knows what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> Who would do that? <laughs> you got you. You need that long form to get it out cogently without sounding like a, a, a an angry maniac. And I I don't know why I'm so <laughs> mad, but I, I I'm I'm glad you helped me identify this issue so I can deal with it. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> get the appropriate help. Uh, well. Yeah, this uh, this is certainly an interesting conversation, and uh, Toby, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Absolutely, yeah. Thanks, for, thanks so much for having me on. It's always fun. Thanks, thank yeah. you again, and, and thank you for the show. It's really great, and again, I highly recommend it. Good work, uh, and yeah. it's it's just it's a treat. So please don't let my rantings interfere with uh, <laughs> the. the, the <laughs> I'm sure you can selectively edit them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Although, again. We've been doing this show for a decade. I've never gone this crazy before in an episode. So I, I think I'll probably leave a lot of this in just to show I'm human. So <laughs> I'm glad I got to witness it. Exactly. <laughs> well, I think a lot of people will agree with you. So That could be true, too. Anyway, if you have any complaints, you can talk to my wife on Twitter. Um, there you <laughs> <Yeah>. go. <laughs> All right, Toby. Have a great evening. Okay. So thank you. Keep in touch. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Monster Dog. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. You've been listening to an interview with author, researcher, and podcaster Toby Ball. Season two of his podcast, Strange Arrivals, is out now on all your favorite podcast platforms. Links to his show, his books, and to articles and other stuff that I was ranting about in the intro are in our show notes for this episode. Monster Talk is now part of the Airwave family of podcasts. Airwave is home to other quality shows such as The Projection Booth, Infamous America, and Wild Black. Check them out. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support that's monstertalk.org forward slash support we have links there to our patreon page as well as a donation button 
Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. As always, thank you for listening. Monster House presentation.